0: On Front Page with me this morning, Venita Tan, Managing Editor of Islamic Finance News. Good morning, Venita. Good morning, Chef. And uh, also from uh, Free Malaysia Today, Robin Augustine. Good morning, Robin.
1: Good morning.
0: Now, thousands of China tourists are cancelling their holidays in Malaysia following the haze and have chosen other ASEAN countries. The impact is disastrous. Some tour groups have had enough time to cancel. Others are not so fortunate and they've had to continue with tourists complaining about the air quality. This is a seasonal Mm -hmm. nuisance that will affect tourism, will affect the economy in Malaysia. Uh, (laughs) What do you think the impact is in the long run? I think we can already see the direct impact. The fact that to, uh, tours
2: or holidays are being cancelled and you have a direct economic effect, right? Not only from um, tourists um, not coming to Malaysia uh we're talking about a domino effect with less tourists this is going to impact the hotel industry we're talking about restaurants being affected retail spending is going to deteriorate as well and we're looking at just looking at Chinese tourists alone mm-hmm. they uh, contribute somewhat 12 billion ringgit in uh, tourism revenue uh, wow yeah so so. That is, there's a huge
0: chunk. Yeah, your thoughts, Robin?
1: Yeah, I think, of course, it's quite disappointing for the local tourism industry because it's only recently that we're starting to get more China tourists back. Mm -hmm. I think last year was reported that we had a very disappointing golden week. So, yeah, you know, at the time when we're getting the China tourists back, the haze chases them away.
0: Right. Has this been a problem for our country, though, in the last 20 years that we've seen the haze, you know, seasonally come?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think every time there is a, a severe haze situation here in the country, we see the economic numbers going down because of impact not only on the tourism sector but also healthcare. Yes, you know, I think last year or two years ago, it was something like one and a half billion ringgit in healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about when when people call in sick, then employers, businesses will be affected as well, and this could be in the millions of ringgit. But the issue here is that uh, while well, what's interesting that while well, Indonesia. And Singapore, they actually have numbers, The actual numbers of the impact of haze. We actually Malaysia don't really have that numbers um, since nineteen ninety seven. I, I, I why think. is that? I don't know. Um, it, it's it's funny. Like we don't really have official stats, like uh-huh. what the real um, economic or real cost for for healthcare, for education, for businesses. So I'm not sure mm. why. Robin, you look like you want to say something
0: mm. here. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, you know, it's it's not just in terms of foreign tourists, but inbound tourists as well. Um, You know, it's the local popular spots, especially when it comes to holiday seasons. And it's the smaller towns that that really get the impact. So I agree that I think we do need figures to really see how much the haze is costing us. And I think that will help us take it more seriously.
0: I'm sure it will. Now, coming up, Anwar's fate is in God's hands, says Zuraida. We'll take a look at that headline next. After Daniel Pouter, here's Bad Day on Light. And on front page with me this morning from Free Malaysia Today, Robin Augustine, and from Islamic Finance News, Vinita Tan. And it looks like Anwar's fate is in God's hands. So says Zuraida Kamaruddin, PKR vice president. She said this when asked to comment on a Bloomberg News report quoting Dr. Sri Anwar saying that he would likely take over the premiership in May of next year. She says that um, we want to meet him. And I think as a leader aspiring to be the eighth prime minister, he should show a Big Heart. This was in response to Anwar's decision not to entertain the request made by a disgruntled group in his party. So let's get to the bottom of this. Uh, who are these disgruntled people in PKR? Robin?
1: For a long time now, analysts have said that PKR is split in two, uh, which Anwar has denied. But Zuraida actually said in July, admitted that there were cracks in the party. He just believed that there is a pro-Anwar Ibrahim camp and a pro-Azmin Ali camp.
0: Right. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, she's call- she's been calling for a meeting with Anwar. Especially, I think, um, the, the problems of, like, Became worse after the sex video. I think she sent three letters, or they have sent three letters, um, to Anwar asking for a meeting. While you know he's saying there's no need for a for for reconciliation meeting. Let's just meet during our monthly or weekly meets to discuss whatever issues that we
0: have. Okay, so Zuraida has said that you know these should be kind of closed door meetings because you know there are sensitive issues to be discussed. Uh, Why would Dato Sri Anwar not want to have? Um, such a meeting to you know just to so everyone can air their grievances. I think for him is that the platform is already there. I mean, mm. we
2: already we are going to meet what, monthly. The, the leadership is going to meet monthly, so the the platform is already there. And maybe in a way is so, all right, there's nothing high. If you want, if you want to bring something to the table, just mm-hmm. just come and
0: do it. Why do you think Rider does not want to do it? in a public platform, such as the monthly meetings?
1: So from what Zoraida has said, basically the so-called pro-Azmin faction has not been attending the party meetings. And uh, what Zoraida said was, uh, when asked by reporters, was that she wants Anwar to meet with the elected party members, not along with the appointed party members. Mm,
0: I see. Okay, so what do you feel needs to be reconciled?
1: I think for them to move forward is... They have to really accept that Anwar is the Pakatan Harpan's designated PM and definitely attend the party meetings.
2: But at the same time, I mean, is it very difficult for, say, like, your next PM to actually meet with, you know, elected Mm -hmm. leaders? Is it so hard to give some time to them if they truly had some grievances
0: to air and to share. Well, this is definitely something we we'll are continue to watch. Now, coming up, uh, the Mycot Syndicate, the NRD, proposes an establishment of DNA Data Bank to prevent leakage. We'll find out more with our panel next, after Mariah Carey and the traffic update here on Light. On front page with me this morning, uh, Robin Augustine from Free Malaysia Today and Vinita Tan from Islamic Finance News. Now, the National Registration Department has proposed to the government to establish a DNA data bank, and that information is to be included in birth certificates in order to prevent leakage in the long run. It said that uh, this was recommended as an immediate improvement to streamline the NRD's delivery system, including tightening its standard operating procedures. Now, have any other countries implemented this DNA data bank?
1: Countries like the U.S., they have a DNA data bank. But to my knowledge, it's more for the criminal justice system
2: right uh, yeah we actually see this a lot in developed countries not only the US the UK um, Estonia India is considering to actually launch a data bank um, next month actually mm-hmm. yeah and, and and like what Robin has said it is more for uh, forensic DNA purposes in terms of like identifying individuals for criminal cases there are also um, instances where the DNA data bank is actually used to identify um, genetic diseases for medical research purposes right
0: But with regards to my cards uh, and and those being cloned and whatnot, um, how would DNA addition to this whole registration and SOPs actually help? Oh, I suppose it's sort of like how the biometrics would work, right? Because mm-hmm. DNA
2: is supposedly 99.9% accurate, therefore it's unique to every individual. Right. So, you know, by having a DNA component in identifying an individual, mm-hmm. one would assume that mm-hmm. this would prevent or minimize any sort of like forgery or cloning of my cards. And
0: yeah. As the end user, we can give our DNA. But if it's going to be cloned by various people within, you know, structures like the NRD, then... Uh, how does that work? Mm. <laughs> My assumption is that <laughs> maybe when you go and apply
2: for your IC, mm-hmm. your card, you will need to then provide a sample of your DNA to cross-match or cross-reference with what you've provided earlier.
1: I mean, there are always concerns for abuse. And mm-hmm. I think that's why in the overall, that DNA was just one of the recommendations uh, okay. given to the government. Among Another thing they said to avoid abuse is to actually... Rotate the NRD stuff.
0: I think that would be a better idea. <laughs> Are there any bodies that regulate the issuance of my cards by the uh, National Registration Department? There is the, the Act for
2: uh, National Registration Act, um, but no. I think also, like, DNA Data Bank is not easy to implement. Mm-hmm. So even in other countries, uh, in the US and the UK, they've done it since the 90s, but it's a very, very costly mm-hmm. affair. and you You have so many things to think about. You have to think about how you're going to collect the DNA, um, you know, h- how to store the DNA mm-hmm, mm-hmm. informed consent because they're talking about since birth set so a, ch- a baby really yes. you know um, there's the whole ethical issue and then abuse as well how you going to prevent this DNA information being used against you yeah. so these are, are, are elements that, that other countries are also tackling like I said India is going to introduce mm-hmm. um, DNA data bank and they are looking to actually pass a law first to regulate uh, to make sure that these um, elements or, or
0: areas are being addressed all right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely a cause for concern, mm-hmm. especially the abuse of that information. Now, coming up, uh, the co-op movement can help tackle rising cost of living, so says Toon Dr. Mother Muhammad. We'll find out more after Charlie Puth and Megan Trainor. This is Marvin Gaye on Light. And on front page with me this morning, Vinita Tan, managing editor of Islamic Finance News and Robin Augustine, journalist with Free Malaysia Today. Now, co-op movements can help tackle rising cost of living. So says student Dr. Mother Muhammad. He said the contribution of a cooperative was not just to increase the GDP, but uh, must also be viewed from the aspect of increasing the purchasing power of the people towards achieving the shared prosperity vision. I guess we were exposed to co-ops in schools. Uh, it's still don't quite understand how that works. So, explain it to us, Venita. <laughs> so, think about co-ops like uh, people-centric
2: organizations, right? Mm-hmm. So, basically, businesses or enterprises for certain like social or economic or cultural needs that is sort of like jointly owned by all the members So and dem- democratically run. So, yeah. members have an equity stake in, in the co-op and they have a say in how businesses are run.
0: Right. And um, I remember in the 1980s that uh, co-ops were a huge thing. I mean, maybe because there was need for that how effective have co-ops been in the last i guess 20 30
1: years um well in theory i mean you could uh, with a co-op you could buy things in bulk and then get better prices for it and sell it to your members for much lower prices if we look at our track record it would vary depending on the co-op itself because you have from very big co-ops to small ones right
2: Actually, the co-op model is actually a very, very effective model. Not only in Malaysia, but in other co- in other countries as well, we see cooperatives in, like, in India, in the UK, and the reason being that it's because it's jointly owned. There's a sense of ownership, and and yeah, lower lower prices for consumers because at the end, who you're serving as a co-op are the consumers themselves, mm-hmm. who are also stakeholders. So in terms of sort of effectiveness, I think studies have actually shown that co-ops are have are twice more likely mm-hmm. to survive their first. 5 years of businesses as compared to traditional business models. Right. Yeah, and what's interesting about co-ops is that they often have a social goal as well. So often they will reinvest
0: or invest their profits into the community
2: that, that they're actually representing or serving. Right.
0: Okay. So um I guess this will not just benefit the B40 but anyone who's able to to you know invest or take part in this yeah, co-op movement. Because there are yeah. like what,
2: over 14,000 co-ops in Malaysia.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of the co-ops are around um, agriculture that Industry. I mean, how would uh, the urban benefit from such movements? I think depending on what type of co ops. So you know, there are over fourteen
2: thousand co ops around. Co op banks are also mm-hmm. a thing here, right? And they often actually service more of the B forty. You know, um, if let's say you are not able to get a loan from a, a traditional bank, then the co op is probably where you will go to, to get financing, and that will help whether in your business or personal uh, needs. Yeah, so there are actually a lot that in terms of like economic and social impact, I think there's a lot... We, I think there is a national target for co-ops to actually um, contribute some fifty billion ringgit next year, and the government asked them let's contribute a bit more to fifty-five wow. billion. So that actually shows the significance in terms of like advancing the country.
0: All right. Well, coming up, uh, Malaysia is deferring the enforcement of VEP during peak hour traffic following appointment delays. We'll take a look at that headline next after Holland notes here on Light on Front Page. With me this morning Managing Editor of Islamic Finance News, Vinita Tan, and from Free Malaysia Today, Robin Augustine. And it looks like Malaysia's Transport Ministries announced on Monday that it will defer enforcement of its Vehicle Entry Permit, the VEP, during peak hour traffic operations until further notice. Uh, They said this was made in light of several issues, including difficulties in obtaining appointments for the RFID tag installation. Now, they meant this way back in 2017, that all foreign registered vehicles entering the country will need a VEP. So, um, why is this still an issue? There are a few, right? You can think of is one is
2: uh, I think the complaints is the fact that there is not enough fitment centers and the fact that the, the lines are extremely long. Mm-hmm. So, I, I actually don't know how many cars would need to be fitted with RFID, but obviously, only like two, two, three
0: fitment centers are in Singapore. not enough. Yeah. Right. Can we assume that every Singapore car that comes in already is fitted with this VEP? PRFID The thing is I think there's
2: no clarification whether or not it's about inbound cars or outbound cars So my assumption is that anything that crosses the border will have to be fitted. Any foreign cars will have to be fitted with RFID.
1: So it's basically all uh, foreign cars that want to enter and exit Malaysia. Right. So they will need to have to fit their cars with the VEP RFID which mm-hmm. is linked to a Touch and Go e-wallet.
0: Right. Now, I understand that the RFID cannot be used anywhere outside the Klang Valley or is there a special one?
1: This is a... The VEP RFID would be different from the RFID lanes that we see in the Klang Valley but both are linked to a touch and go e-wallet.
0: Okay so basically it's it's just a matter of getting the appointment and having your car outfitted. Have you gotten your RFID? No I have not. I've, I've
2: been wanting to do that for like months and honestly I've been to you know when they, ha- when they were handing out this free uh, fitting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I've been to two of three uh, different centres, the different times but the line's just too long.
0: Really? Yeah. yeah. Y- yourself, Robin?
1: I prefer my smart tag.
0: Well, so do I but uh, from what I understand as of next year the RFID lane will be the lane and uh, no more smart tags. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that right? Touch and go tags? Nothing of that sort? Yeah, so
1: the government is trying to move towards an all RFID.
0: But I think there are a lot of kings to actually iron out. It's a long way
2: because at the moment not every highway except. Has the RFID lane right, mm-hmm. and even so, there's only one or maximum two, and there's always every time on the highway there's always someone who is has stuck. trouble so stuck, and yeah. you have to like you know go stand, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, smart tire uh, for me that that's just easier, right. One thing I am glad is that we've moved away from cash transaction at the toll yeah, plaza, absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think they should still you know maintain the touch and go, and you know all just that, just in case. Just in case. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Front. Page of Anita and Robin. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.